0: good morning again welcome we are continuing in a section of the psalms called the psalms of sense in the whole arc of the psalter uh, we are at a part that's set in the context of israel returning from exile in babylon Uh, but this section is also set against the backdrop and in the context of the pilgrimages that israel was required to make three times a year uh, to go up to jerusalem so we're going to continue through that we're on psalm 122 today I believe it's on page 516, somewhere around there, 17. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Built as a city that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, these words of yours are spirit and life. Use them this morning to open our eyes so that we might see the beauty of your Son, Jesus. Transform us. Bring us life by the power of your Spirit. We pray in his name. Amen. I wonder how you would respond to a friend or a family member who said to you, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Uh, In our spiritual but not religious climate, you know that something like that is very common. Uh, There is now this whole industrial complex of books and podcasts, even pastors, who set Jesus, good, against the church, bad, old, lame. Some of you uh, know about this recent trend of deconstruction. Uh, which is a particularly visceral, sometimes angry form of all this. Uh, Much of it, I think, is driven by a growing conflict between the historic teaching of the church and the priorities of our wider culture, especially around sexuality. Uh, But some of it's driven by flagrant hypocrisy of churches and people who claim the name of Jesus. But whatever the reason, there are a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, who just don't like the church. But the psalm that we have in front of us today celebrates the church. We too should be rejoicing with David in God's people. Not only insofar as God's people exist as and among its individuals, but also, and this is the part that's really hard for people in our culture, Also, we should be celebrating God's people as it exists, as and among its institutions. Ooh, bad word. The psalm begins with this sunny recollection. David says, I was glad when they said to me, Let's go to the house of the Lord. Is participation in Jesus' church something that you are rejoicing in? Are you glad? When people around you say to you, let's go worship the Lord. Let's go to an institution and worship God together. But wait a minute. Is this Psalm about the church? Isn't it talking about Jerusalem? Says it a bunch of times there. Isn't it talking about a building in Jerusalem called the temple, the house of the Lord? Let me take a sidetrack for a bit, a slightly longer sidetrack than I usually do. Uh, I want to show you how I think Jesus has taught us to read the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament. I want to show you what I think, what we officially as a church think Jesus has taught us to see and to hear when we come across words and concepts like Israel, Jerusalem, and temple. Particularly in poetic and liturgical texts. Like the Psalms. Uh, due in large part, not entirely, but due in large part to the best selling nonfiction book of the 1970s, many Christians today believe that when you read this phrase, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they believe that what that means is that God is not just suggesting, but that God is commanding that we support the modern nation state of Israel. That God is not just suggesting, but is commanding us to expect the rebuilding of an actual temple in Jerusalem where there is currently a mosque. And that all of these things are necessary in order for Jesus to return. Some of us here this morning might believe that. Some of us used to believe that. I used to believe that. Uh, And I want to say that if you uh, believe this, you are welcome to be here. We're glad to be here. Uh, This is not something we talk about all the time. Uh, Glad you're here this morning. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with us. And again, like I said last week, I and we, of course, totally condemn what Hamas did two weeks ago. But I'm not talking today about how the modern nation state of Israel should or should not respond to that. And I am not talking today about what you should think or not about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Today I'm talking about how Jesus has now taught us as Christians to understand what the Bible means when it uses words like Israel and Jerusalem. Now here it is. In line with the great majority of Christians throughout history, I and we as a church believe that the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus' new covenant church is to Old Covenant Israel what a butterfly is to a caterpillar. The New Covenant Church is to Old Covenant Israel what a butterfly is to a caterpillar. It is not that the church has replaced Israel, but rather that in a very real sense, the church is Israel in its climactic form. The reason for this, this is really important, pay attention, take a sip of coffee. The reason for this is because Jesus is Israel in its climactic form. Jesus, a Jewish man, he was and he still is and he always will be a Jewish man. He was perfectly subject to all of Israel's law. Jesus is the heir of all of Israel's promises. And because we are united to him, remember I talked about that last week, because we are united to Jesus by faith, the New Testament says that means that we Christians too are heirs of Israel's promises, even if we are not ethnically Jewish. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Jesus is the heir of all of Israel's promises. He's the beneficiary. He's what all the promises are really about. He's whom the promises are really for. And when you are united to him by faith, that means the father now treats you like he treats his own son. That means you too get to be an heir and a beneficiary with your brother Jesus of all of Israel's promises. You can see that all over the New Testament. Uh, there are even hints of it in the Old Testament. Uh, here is an example. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, who, uh, that's a church mostly made up of Greco-Roman uh, Gentiles who used to be pagans, and they are really fascinated with becoming Jewish. They think, whoa, there's some really special magic juju about becoming Jewish. Maybe we should think about doing this and going back to following the Mosaic law. Here's what Paul says to them. He says, Jesus, this is in chapter 3, he says, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. That means he's the ultimate heir to Abraham's promises. And then Paul goes on to link that to Christians. A couple paragraphs later, remember, most of these Christians are not Jewish. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. In other words, all those united to Jesus by faith are the beneficiaries of Israel's promises. The apostle Peter even takes titles and concepts straight out of the Old Testament and that are about Israel and he applies them to churches made up mostly of these Greco-Roman Gentiles. For example, Peter says, "You are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. But it's not some idea that the apostles just made up. It is what Jesus taught them. Uh, Indeed, it's the entire pattern of Jesus' life. I started writing this sermon. I had all these wonderful parallels and examples from the Gospels and I ran out of time and didn't want to test your patience. Ask me later if you want to hear about them. But the short version is that in the Gospel accounts, Jesus very obviously is living and acting and speaking not just as the true and ultimate Israelite, but as the true and ultimate Israel. His life and his teaching and his mission are all the consummation of Israel's life and law and mission. And so united to him by faith, the New Testament repeatedly says that his people are Jesus' very body on earth. Paul says that God promised Abraham and his heir possession of the entire world. What's the promised land? The promised land is the universe, Romans chapter 4. The small piece of land currently claimed, uh, different parts of it claimed by at least five different countries The small piece of land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean was only the beginning. It was only a shadow of something so much bigger and better. And so having now ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is ruling over the entire universe. He owns all of it. He's the landlord of everything. He has sent his disciples to plant churches throughout the entire cosmos. It's all ultimately his. Yes. So this is why, and this is how, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul can say that the Jerusalem above is our mother. In the letter to the Hebrews, uh, written to Jewish Christians who are really tempted to go back to Judaism, the author tells them that to know and to worship Christ is to have already arrived at the heavenly Jerusalem, not the physical Jerusalem, which is still standing at that time. Now, it's possible that ethnic Jews will widely embrace Jesus before his return. Uh, There are some hints of that in Romans chapter 11. But whenever ethnically Jewish people do submit to Jesus as king, they are not doing it on a separate track from Gentiles. They are re entering. This is Paul again, Romans chapter 10 and 11. They are re entering the one people of God. They are entering the church. Our own Westminster Confession describes Israel as a church under age. It's like a, a kid getting their driver's permit. That's what Israel is it's a church on a driver's permit. The promises of Israel have been and are being fulfilled in Jesus, and so also they are being fulfilled for anyone who trusts in Jesus. And what all that means, bring it all together, according to the New Testament, ethnic Jews no longer have a theological or biblical claim to any land or building or Old Testament promises merely because of their physical lineage. The final genealogy in the Bible is Jesus' genealogy. It's the last one. It's the only one that ultimately matters. Ethnic Jews, along with the rest of the world, are offered something far greater and far better. They're offered new life. They're offered new creation in and through King Jesus, the Messiah. And so to return now, that was a long sidetrack, to return now to Psalm 122. At one time, yes, David's psalm here did refer to a physical city and a physical building. But what I'm trying to show you is that this city and this building were always meant to point forward to Jesus and to his church as the realm and as the means of God's presence, God's redemption in the world. So now, when you hear Psalm 122 talk about Jerusalem or the temple, Jesus teaches us, hear it as referring to us. Uh, you could perhaps consider Jerusalem as a way of describing God's people as a relating community uh, and the, the idea of the temple describing God's people as a worshiping community, overlapping with each other but slightly different nuances there. The reason that they are talking about us as God's people is because they are first and foremost talking about Jesus, our head, our master. He's the vine, we're just the branches. So even though the wider world, even though many Christians see little reason to care about, let alone celebrate the church, we should join David. We should rejoice in God's people as they live under God's rule in his place. Which is to say, we should rejoice in the church. Now, of course, the church is not what is going to be one day. Uh, It takes about five seconds to figure out that churches have all kinds of problems filled with all kinds of sin. The church is not what it is going to one day be in heavenly splendor. But the church is already here. It's here only in part. That's true. It's not what it should be. It's not what it's going to be. But it is here in reality. There's a lot to celebrate even now. And so going up to the house of the Lord, David says, I was so happy when people encouraged me to go up to the house of the Lord. That is not only and ultimately a reference to entering into our heavenly home of worship and rest. It is that. But it's not only that. It's also, and it really is, a reference to going to worship God in this world, in and through local churches like CTK, outposts of this larger reality of the capital C church. And so you got this line here where David is saying, oh, wow, you know, I'm standing right in the gates. He's saying he's really happy. Think about a kid going to Legoland for the first time. You get through the gates You say, wow, I'm at Legoland. Well, yeah, you're at Legoland, but you haven't even done anything yet. But you're still really excited to be there. And so like David, we've arrived, sort of. Our feet are within the gates. We've not fully arrived. We're not riding all the roller coasters yet. The church is not going to be what it will be in the age to come. But it is what it already is in this age, and it should cause us great joy. Why? Why should we celebrate the church even today? Uh, First of all, David tells us, rejoice in what the church is. Uh, You see that in verses 3 to 5. Rejoice in what God's people are. In verse 3, David celebrates that Jerusalem is built as a city that's bound firmly together. That's not only a statement about the church's stability, but also a statement about the church's unity. The idea here, uh, with this firmly bound together language, the idea seems to be that there is whole crowds of people all packed in, in Jerusalem. Everyone's there to celebrate these pilgrimages. They are all assembled to worship God under his king. Uh, Every Sunday, uh, of course, we, uh, the people in this room, we're getting together to worship each other, and that's great, and that's wonderful. But we are also gathering with Christians all over the world. Billions of Christians all over the world are worshiping him this morning. But we're not just gathering with Christians around the world, as great as that is, we are also gathering with everybody, all the angels and all the Christians, gather around the throne of God right now in heaven. We are intersecting, so to speak, uh, with their worship service uh, that's going on all the time. Uh, We kind of jump in and out of it on this plane of reality. And part of what we should see here, especially given that we live in a society that is so desperate to engineer or to impose a kind of unity among different groups of people, What we need to see here is that unity is a gift from God that is only ultimately found in Jesus' church. And I realize that's very offensive to say in our world. The Apostle Paul says in his letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians that Jesus has already made us one. Christians do need to pursue unity. We'll come back to that in a little while. We do need to pursue it. We need to make effort at it. But we do that as a people who have already been fundamentally given unity in Christ. All over the New Testament you see this dynamic. You become what you already are. Unity is a gift that God's already given us. God's built his church. It's something he does. It's not something ultimately that we do. David also rejoices that Jerusalem is where the tribes of the Lord go up. Uh, Originally, this refers to the 12 tribes of Israel, of course. Uh, But today, all the tribes of the earth are coming to worship Jesus. He delights in all kinds of people gathering to worship him together from all of the world's corners and classes and callings. And I know the word diversity gets thrown around a lot today, sometimes as a code word for conformity. But we do need to see here that God really does give his people a delightful unity in the midst of diversity. We should rejoice in that gift. We should embrace it. We should celebrate it. David says that all of this was decreed for Israel. David rejoices that God commanded his people to gather together under and for him. David celebrates what a lot of people today in our world have a really hard time celebrating. David celebrates the structure of God's people. He celebrates that God has given us an order, that God has given us commands to follow You can see the delight in the structure of God's people also in this language about Jerusalem being where God has set up his thrones of judgment. We love and we welcome and we submit to the gift of God's word, the gift of God telling us who we really are, how we are to come to him, how we are to live before him, how we are to worship him together. We celebrate the gift of his word, of his structure, of his order. And what is it that we're supposed to be doing together? David says, God has decreed that we assemble together in verse 4 to give thanks to his name. We get together to praise him. That's the main thing that we're supposed to do when we assemble. The primary thing that we're going to be doing in heaven forever and ever is praising the Lord. We're going to be recognizing and proclaiming and enjoying his goodness and his beauty. There's other things that we do when we get together, but that's the main thing. That's the thing underneath all the other things. We're praising God. Just like the Israelites were commanded to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for these pilgrimage festivals, they were supposed to go up to celebrate what God had provided for them as a people and as families and as individuals. We also today go up, so to speak. We go up to celebrate God's past an ongoing grace towards us. We come as a people who already are. A people who have already been created. A people who have already been rescued and redeemed. A people who have already been embraced by him as his people. That's why we praise him. That's why you should never run out of anything to thank God for. So rejoice in what the church is. We've been graciously rescued. We've been gifted with unity amidst diversity. We've been granted God's clear word of instruction and guidance. We're structured as God's seat for proclaiming and reflecting his justice in and to the world. All those things are a gift. But rejoice also in what God's people are for. Verses 6 to 9. Uh, The church is not only a gift, verses 3 to 5. The church also has a goal, verses 6 to 9. Here at verse 6, the tone and the grammar shifts in the poetry. Uh, We move from celebratory statements. uh, If you are really into grammar, uh, we are shifting out of what's called the indicative mood. And now we are shifting into earnest exhortations and commands about what the church should be. We're moving from statements about what is to commands and exhortations and encouragements about something that's not yet quite true. David commands us. He says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. See, this is part of why I think this is not just talking about heaven. It would make no sense to pray for the peace of heaven uh, sometime down the road in the future. Peace is not just something that we've been given, which we were talking about earlier. Peace is something we also have to pursue. We need to love one another in humility and patience, and kindness. Since in Christ, we're already one. It's a contradiction to be divided against each other when God's already made you one. That doesn't mean do whatever anybody wants. It doesn't mean run around making people really happy. Sometimes it's loving to say no to people. But it does mean that we need to pursue peace. Not least, David says, by praying for it. Uh, That's maybe the most basic way to do it. Uh, I would strongly encourage you if you're not already be praying for this church Uh, or whatever your church is pray for the church around the world pray for the peace of God's church pray for the peace of this church David also pronounces a blessing here on a specific group of people he says may they be secure who love you talking of Jerusalem the word secure is closely related to the word earlier for peace Uh, Together, they often show up together. Together, they describe a life of abundance, a community of joy and harmony. You can see here that this kind of blessing from God uh, comes to and for those who love his people, not just as individuals, but like we've been saying, also as a structured community. But many Christians treat church and community more like they are tourists rather than that they are fellow citizens and fellow pilgrims. Many Christians in many churches operate like this. What am I getting out of it? What are other people doing for me? How am I being served? Are my preferences being satisfied? But that is not to say, may they be secure who love you. That is to say and to function, may they be secure who love me. The kingly blessing from David is orienting us toward the good of the church. Are you seeking its good? Do you love the church if Christ the King is your church home? Do you love this church? It's easy to love abstractions. It's easy to love humanity. It's easy to love the capital C church not easy to love people, not easy to love individuals, not easy to love individual churches. Do you love this church? I do. But in the words of an old Christian rap song, love is a verb. You cannot just talk about love. Some of you know that song. You cannot just talk about love. It's something you do. Now, a lot of that, of course, comes with the way that we love one another. It comes with the ways that we pursue peace with each other in our relationships and the ways that we speak about each other and think about each other. But much of the way that we love God's people, much of the way that the Israelites loved God's people was by bringing material gifts and offerings into Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, uh, towards the end of Deuteronomy, where God's talking about these pilgrimage festivals, he says, you have to come. Everybody, three times a year, come to Jerusalem. When God is talking about that, he actually tells them, uh, when you come, you have to bring something to give back to the God who gave you everything. He doesn't say exactly how much. He just says, bring something. He says, not even the poorest of the poor can come empty-handed. God knows that our wealth, all of it a gift from him, God knows that our wealth so easily entices us away from dependence upon him. God knows that what we do with our wealth, how we think about our wealth, clearly reveals where our true values and hopes are. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, if you're a Christian... And especially if this is your church home, you need to ask yourself, how am I doing with loving Jesus' church with my material treasure, my physical wealth? If you're just visiting today, and especially if you're not a Christian, this is not for you. You can listen. This is not for you. Uh, maybe, especially if you're a member of this church, you've noticed in the bulletin that our church is running a significant financial deficit. I know. I know that inflation is really wearing on a lot of us. I know that things are really tight for some of us. And while I do not know and I do not see how much anybody gives to this church, I know that many of you are generous, even sacrificially so. And I thank you for that, I really do. But like many churches, the great majority of our financial giving comes from a minority of the congregation. It's likely, I don't know who, but it's likely that some of the members of this church have a pattern of giving nothing at all. But the church, the capital C Church, and this church insofar as it faithfully speaks Jesus' word, to put it colloquially, this is where it's at. The church is where and how God is uniquely present in the world. The church is where and how God is uniquely redeeming the world. And so look around. You are the body of Christ. Jesus says you are his bride. And so if the church is so precious to him that he would give up his entire life for the church, shouldn't it be precious enough to us that we would give up some of our fleeting wealth for it? Hasn't God given all of it to you anyways? Now maybe some of you hear me talking about money and you think I'm doing it selfishly or cunningly. It is true, newsflash, it's true. A large chunk of this church's budget goes towards paying me so that I can support my family. But I don't like talking about money. If you know me, you know I hate talking about this. I asked the elders to pray for me this week. I don't like talking about money. I don't like asking for money. Uh, I'm not talking about money because I'm selfish or greedy or cunning. I'm talking about it because I want to get fired. I'm just kidding. I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it because I love you. Because God loves you. If you don't give, Jesus' church and me and my family will be okay. But Jesus says that you're the ones who are going to really miss out. Look at verse 8. Look back at Psalm 122. Look at verse 8. David says, For my brothers and my companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. Remember what what David had said before? Who gets God's blessing? People who love the church. People who love his people. And David says, It's for my brothers and my companions' sake. David, the kingly pilgrim, the author of this psalm, is saying, I'm not calling you to love and support Jerusalem just because I happen to live here just because I happen to be the king here, just because this is where my palace is. Jesus speaks more about money, more about the dangers of idolizing it than just about anybody else in the Bible. And David, and Jesus especially, speaks about it because he wants what's good for us, because he loves us. Jesus is the great and final David. Jesus is the one who speaks and seeks God's blessing upon us. He says, peace upon you, my beloved people, my bride. Security be with you. How does he do that? How does he bring God's peace and security upon us? By encouraging us to love the church. By encouraging us, motivating us, empowering us to love God's people. Not only, but including with your treasures. Jesus We, I, are seeking your good. We're seeking your blessing. We're seeking your security. That's why you should love the church. Because it's good for us. It's good for the world. And why is that? Look at verse 9. Why is the church good for the world? Because it's the house of the Lord our God. This is where God is uniquely present. This is where God meets us most clearly as the Redeemer and the Rescuer who's come to us in Jesus. Jesus has so lovingly, so permanently joined us to himself. There will stop being a church when Jesus ceases to exist. So rejoice in the church, not just because of what God has already made it to be, but because of what he's also making it into a people who are enjoying the peace and the goodness of God's presence forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, teach us to see what a delight it is to be your people. What a delight it is to be part of your people, to know your people. Uh, Some of us have been hurt very badly by churches and by Christians and by pastors. Some of us have seen gross hypocrisy we know that their hypocrisy stinks to heaven but we also know more deeply that jesus is good that he's wise that we can trust him help us to trust him as we love his bride and help us to live as those who enjoy your blessing in seeing the good of your church we pray in the name of jesus amen